What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Musician, producer, and label owner Jack White is one of the most important people in the music industry. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We talk blues, the White Stripes, and more with Jack White. Plus, we explore the history of the Rickenbacker 12-string guitar in rock music, and we remember the life of Greg Allman. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Todd and my partner is Jim DeRogatis. This week we're talking with Jack White. A few years ago, Greg and I took a road trip down to Nashville to interview Jack in his amazing recording studio and record store. We talked with him about his life growing up in Detroit, the beginning and the end of his most famous band, The White Stripes, and his record label, Third Man Records. It was such an amazing interview. We're revisiting it today. When we talked to Jack in 2012, I started by asking how music first came into his life. Yeah, my older brothers all played instruments, so, you know, they had a band going, and they, they, they all, a cousin who lived on the street also played, like, clarinet, fiddle, electric guitar as well. So the attic where they all slept, because there's a lot of kids in the, you know, there's like th three of them slept up there, I think, at the time when I was maybe like five years old, but they, there was a drum kit up there, mm. you know, all kinds of pawn shop guitars and stuff. It was second nature to play any of those instruments, but I loved playing the drums from early on. I liked, you know, did recordings with them when I was like four or five years old, and um, always played, the whole time I was growing up, just, just did nothing but play the drums. I, I played other instruments a little bit, like guitar a little bit or whatever, but didn't really care about it. What was the scene like in, in Detroit? Uh, did you feel like there was, there was bands to play in? There were role models for you as a, as a, as a guy to be playing in bands? How did that all start, that you, you got, took that next step to actually going out and playing shows? There was a lot of huge Catholic families, even on that block. There's probably like four or five big Catholic families just on that block. And uh, uh, the next-door neighbors, the Muldoons, who I ended up working at, Brian Muldoon's upholstery shop when I got to be a teenager. Uh, maybe they were into like more punk rock and more heavier stuff. They were into or the MC5 and the Sujus kind of rock and roll, I think. And uh, my brothers were more into The Who, Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Rolling Stones. There was a lot, a lot of that going on. I was always hanging out with people who were 20 years older than me. You know, even when I became a teenager, I became a songwriter. You know, as a later teenager, and I went to coffee houses in Hamtramck and stuff. I, it was all these artists from Europe that were, you know, in their 40s when I was 18 or whatever. So, all, all my mentors and role models were always were always way older. When I talked to you years ago, you were talking about these blues records that had this transformative power in your life, yeah. and you were getting these from these older, older listeners. I take it, right? Yeah, like when I worked at Muldoon's, Muldoon's shop, his goal was to sort of turn me on to all these things I had never heard, which, you know, because when he started to realize the things I hadn't heard, it was sort of, he was kind of shocked or something, you know. 
So it would be like while we were working one day, he'd play me the Velvet Underground, and the next day he'd play me the Cramps, and the next day we'd listen to Fugazi. It was his goal to, as a mentor to also turn me on to all this other music, which I'm very thankful for. You know, he took me to my first punk concert, which was Fugazi. On and on, we also had a two-piece band together, me and him. So when we were done at the end of the day, we would move the couches and chairs over and start and set up and play. And, and he was a drummer, so I had to play guitar to play with him, which wasn't really not, that my big interest, you know. And I was like 15 years old, so I'm like, all right, I'll play guitar because he only plays drums. So if we're gonna play together, that's I better learn this. I guess I got to do it, you know. Mm -hmm. I had been doing that a little bit because I had gotten a reel-to-reel four-track, and uh, so I, I wanted to record drums, but I had, I had something to play along with, so I would play a guitar part and play the drums along with it. So that was what we had going on there, but it was just a perfunctory thing to play guitar. Mm -hmm. no, I had no interest in it until later on when I started thinking about writing songs. Well, it's kind of neat that you had these people in your life who took the time to show you. I mm. have a friend who's a sociology professor who, who writes a lot about music and says it's much like the drug culture. Like nobody knows how to inhale or how to snort whatever shown, until yeah. somebody's shown, right? Do you think it's the same today? Uh, you know, are, are people getting that same kick if they just accidentally download something or follow one of those website recommendations? If you yeah. like this, right, yeah, you yeah. may like this. I think that that can happen slightly in, in certain instances. And I, I definitely stumbled onto things on accident here and there, but most of it was people putting something in front of my face. But I, but I, I got to say, the funny thing was, a lot of those records he'd play, I did not like them. And the same thing with the blues, you know, I said, like, oh, yeah, I like the blues, like, whatever, it's okay, you know, and, you know, I like rock and roll, and I know all those guys play these, all these blues songs from these old blues artists. It wasn't until Sun House where it really, really kicked in. Howlin' Wolf was sort of my gateway drug, you know. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, Howlin' Wolf's great, you know, and learned how to play Sitting on Top of the World when I was, like, 14 or something like that. But then how, I mean, my son house was later on, like 6, 17 or something, like 17 or 18, maybe something like that. He, he um, just blew my mind in the way that you could always, the way I still to this day hope I can still find new things to blow my mind. But that was, that'll always be the most important to me. Don't you mind, fever granted in your feet. Don't mind, people granted in your face. Yeah, just... Bear this in mind, a true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind people grinning in your face? You know your mother will talk about you. A grinning in your face, that, that, yeah. that song in particular came up. What was it about that song that sort of transfixed you? I think it just sort of says everything at once. It says everything about what it's like to be alive and to have situations and social interaction with other people that no matter what you do, it's in a lot of ways, it's a lose-lose situation, so you should just get used to that idea. You can't uh, live your life hoping for this scenario to occur that's never going to happen. He, he, he can say lines in songs, you know, like, it's it hard to love somebody who don't love you. And that, that's really indicative of everything we think about all day long. And that song especially, that even your own mother will talk about you. That's pretty hardcore to say something mm. like that in the song. And it's true, man. I mean, it's true for everybody. You know they'll jump you up and down. They'll carry you all around and around. Just as soon as your back a turn, they'll be trying to crush you down. Yes, but bear this in mind. A true friend is hard to find. Don't you mind? People grinning 
in your face. I don't even understand that idea. Like grinning in your face is such a bizarre lyric to to put. He could have said, "Don't you mind people talking about you or something?" But don't you mind people grinning in your face? Mm. Now they're gonna smile at you and lie to you to your face. That's pretty pretty heavy, man. You know. So I don't know. Just it still to this day hits me like that. What kills me about what you're saying is. It wasn't just a sound, it was, you were getting wisdom out of these records. Yeah, exactly. You know, somebody said, uh, well, why do I like the blues or whatever? And it's like, because it's the truth. It's the only thing I can think of is to say that it's the truth. There's all the ideas of what people think the blues is, like the Blues Brothers or these you know, glasses, or I, I woke up this morning, da-da-da-da-da, kind of. But the blues really, uh, at its purest form, is the truth. And that's why I think all of the great music is built off of it because it all has a, a taste of what the truth really is. At gunpoint, someone would to pick up a guitar and say, play something for, for, for these people. You would probably play something that was very similar to what the blues is. So you love this music, and you went back deep and went back to the source. And I, I got the sense when I talked to you years ago that the White Stripes weren't, in fact, they wanted to play this music, they loved it, they embraced it, but at the same time, it was kind of like there was almost a little sheepishness about it because there's these two mm -hmm. white kids from Detroit playing this music that is so deep and there's so much wisdom in it. Yeah. Were you feeling a little bit like we've got to attack this from our own angle, otherwise people are just going to laugh, laugh us off the stage? Kind yeah, of very much so. It was, especially in that hipster garage rock world, that, that blues is already a dangerous territory to even think about performing it, you know, because there's all that horrible Stratocaster blues that everyone's gotten so dulled down by. So you, so you had to almost like have some kind of pretension to it, like a tongue-in-cheek thing, which I saw certain bands kind of doing that kind of stuff, but to me it was like, like I, I, don't, I don't like that. I didn't like the humor involved in the blues, which a lot of, there was a lot of humor-based blues bands at that time too, which t totally turned me off. What I was also interested at the same time was, a, was design and a lot of things, just breaking something down to its simplistic form. I was thinking about starting to design furniture and stuff. And when Meg sat down on the drums and we played, it was, I was trying to play simply. And it ended up sounding so much more powerful than any other bands I'd played with, other people I'd played with. And we just kept, we kept, we kept going. But I said, there's something going on here. And it's going to take a second, but let's just keep trying it. By the way, the, the aesthetic of the band kind of came from these natural things, like her liking peppermint candies, and we painted peppermint candy in her bass drum. I said, well, we should play like kids, and she had two ponytails, and all that stuff. And this, there's a childishness to simplicity. Let's, let's focus on this. You're playing like a little kid. I'll play like a little kid, too, but we'll interject all of this, and this will all be the blues. And nobody will know it's the blues, because it'll have <laughs> yeah. all this stuff around it. It'll be harder to decipher, and maybe we'll get somewhere. Then we were going to play our first couple shows at the Gold Dollar in the, in the corridor, and he, he, they, we kind of thought, ah, people aren't going to like this, and make, like, people aren't going to get this. They're just going to think I'm not a good drummer, Jack, and stuff. And like, people really liked the band instantly, which was pretty shocking. I mean, for as jaded as all those hipsters are, man, they, they kind of immediately gave us a chance. It was such a bizarre little band. It's the kind of band you would want to go see if you were on tour somewhere and you stopped in a bar and 
th yeah. this is the kind of band I would wish to see or find a record in a record rack. And that's how I started attacking those Italy records when we were recording those first Italy records, uh, 45s. It's like, well, let's make this record as if, you know, if you were searching through and you pulled this out and you found this strange record and you put it on, wouldn't it be great if it was also at good? <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm with Greg Codd, and we're talking to Jack White. Jack, you used the word hipster a couple times. It seems like you're getting something off your chest. Hipster and this notion of authenticity. Yeah. You seem to have been happy to be liberated lately. I'm not going to care about that crap anymore. Mm -hmm. These indie rock hipsters who say, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. You mm -hmm. can, if you're going to play blues, you better sneer at it or be sarcastic or irony and yeah. blah, 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 blah. All right, explain that bug up your butt. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anytime you're in, in, a, in a kind of scene of music, there is these parameters that you're probably not allowed to leave if you want to exist in that world. I'm sure if you're a country singer here in Nashville, you've got one format at radio, country, not mm -hmm. nine different versions of country. There's country, that's it. And if you don't record in a certain way, you're not going to get played on the radio. So every genre has their things, has their rules, and has their, like, you know, if you step outside of it, people are going to look at you cross-eyed. But the worst is white, hip, you know, <laughs> jaded, garage rock, whatever that wor world is. That's the harshest, I think, because you kind of you kind of can't win. There's so much pretension on every side of you. It's not supportive. It's not, it's yeah. not supportive. So what you get, like, say, what I, what I would be jealous of back there is, like, you know, say, like, the country we're right now, they're very loyal fans. Like, if you start liking Garth Brooks or Faith Hill, you're going to like them to the day you die. In rock and roll, they might like you this week, but ne next month, man, I don't know. Like, I remember, I remember when we came out with the second White Stripes record, the second album. I mean, still, <laughs> you give a damn about us. I remember people saying, oh, there's a band that went bad really fast. <laughs> It was like, damn, man. <laughs> you know, it was like, it, would, it was like, you know. The funny thing is, the most, they're the most open minded people to thinking about what can be considered art. But it gets wrapped around authenticity, which is the biggest bunk ever. You know, authenticity is, is just, a, a, just an evil trap. And um, we've always had fun messing with it. I mean, yeah. the, the very fact with the white stripes to go out on stage and everything's red, white, and black is so completely inauthentic. Obviously, those are not your street clothes, and obviously, you know, it was, it was a big, like, ha isn't that, is it exactly what you hate, <laughs> you know, but it was twisted on itself so much that you couldn't, I think a lot of them couldn't help but like it. Uh, but you, you decided can, you to keep going and that. going. I'm going to play with this. Like, I've always have, yeah, I always have. I mean, once you're at the first 45, once you're doing Marlena Dietrich song on the B-side, I mean, that's like, <laughs> obviously something a blues band wouldn't do. Me over closely. After a short break, more of our interview with Jack White, and later, a history of the Rickenbacker 12-string guitar in rock. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. 
Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Codd and my partner is Jim DeRogatis. This week, we're revisiting our conversation with Jack White. Now, back in uh, 2012, Jim and I had the privilege of traveling to Nashville to talk with Jack at uh, the, his Third Man Records studios. Jack White's been the creative force behind various projects over the years, but he's most famous for the uh, White Stripes. That band put out six great records and went out on top when his musical partner and ex-wife Meg White left the band. I asked Jack how the band was able to get such diverse sounds out of just two members. So much of the White Stripes is me, you know, it is me. The things that I, I want to do and naturally want to do. You could take a record like uh, Get Behind Me Same that had a bunch of marimbas on it. There was no plan in my head. I didn't sit down with Meg and say, what's the next record going to sound like? We're going to have the marimbas on it, we're going to do it here, whatever. It was sort of, well, where are we going to record it? And I thought, well... Why don't we just record it here at the house on the staircase? The staircase is huge. Maybe we'll get something happening from that. We'll just bring the equipment in here. We haven't done that since Distill. We'll see what happens. I had just bought a marimba at Hebrew and <laughs> Breeze, uh, and I, it was in my dining room, so it was right next to us. So that got started to get played on, on, on stuff. And for all the, what, the presentation that happens at the end of when we would complete things with the White Stripes and how we put it to people, the way all the things to start with me all the time are always accidents. The blue colors on my new record are from this blue Telecaster that I had in the studio and this blue RCA public school amplifier. Accents are usually the best thing. I mean, talk about real. I mean, there's nothing more real than an accident. And, and, and uh, when you build off of that, you're, you're centering it on yourself rather than drawing up a, and hatching an evil plan and hoping it comes to fruition. <laughs> you know? I thought Meg was a perfect drummer for that band, but oh, she yeah. got a lot of shtick because she wasn't a technically great drummer. Yeah. What was it about her drumming that allowed you to, to be creative in that, in that sense and be so, to change it up with each People record? can't, uh, I mean, I'm obviously playing those songs with amazing drummers right now, a lot of two, two amazing drummers. Anytime I play with other people, none, nobody can do it like Meg does it. It's just perfect. It's, it's just like that thing Picasso said about you, you spend your whole life learning how to paint like a five-year-old. Drunk on a 
naturally do it like that. It's just, it's just perfect. And she took a lot of shit. She still, she always will. I mean, Ringo takes a lot of shit, which is ridiculous. But uh, it's, it's the thing that uh, you know would get her down sometimes. I'd say, look, you don't understand. It's bigger. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than our band. What you're doing is impossible to recreate through all the technical drummers, and I know them. I'm a drummer, and I've played with all of them, and they're not doing it like you. When we play together, it's totally different. It's just electric, man. It's just mind blowing. It's it's just something as if you love music and you get deeper and deeper into it, you start to realize some of those things, like the Charlie Watts and Ringos of these this world, were so much bigger sounding than you thought they were at first. Would would Meg ever get discouraged? Yeah, all the time. It's mean what people would do to her, and sexist at the same time, and and ridiculous. You know, she would just say, yeah, or she'd say like, you know, Jack, people got this to an extent in the smaller clubs. The mainstream is not gonna get this at all, Jack. Like, I mean, they're not gonna get me. And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know what we're supposed to do. I mean, it's, I think it's worth it. And were you disappointed when, when the band ended? Yeah, oh yeah, of course. I love, I love the White Stripes. This is most, it's, uh, it's the happiest accident that's ever happened to me. You know, I mean, I, I you can you can meet a thousand bands, you can play in bars your whole life, and you know, to stumble upon meeting someone else, if you're in a four-piece band and and you like if you're in the Who and you happen to meet Keith Moon or whatever, or or you know, Led Zeppelin gets together or something like that. Anytime you're human beings like can find each other and and create something together, and you wonder how in the hell did you guys meet each other or whatever. Well, any band I've been in, it's like that. You, you got to feel you're lucky to to be able to do this for one thing. You're lucky that you don't hate each other, the other people in this band, but that if you can create something that other people are digging, they're getting something out of. That's unbelievable, man. And to the extent a two-piece band and the kind of music we were playing that actually could cross over into people's minds and and be an album people would talk about around the world is pretty ridiculous. I mean, it doesn't. It's not mm. lost on me. Mm. It'll never be lost on me. That's a bizarre, a bizarre accomplishment. It's, it's, you can't even call it an accomplishment. I, I have to put the word bizarre in there because it wasn't a goal of ours. You know, we weren't trying to do that. It happened to us and it doesn't matter all the hard work and all the whatever that's involved in it. Um, you still have to be blessed with some sort of moment that just happened to be right timing or the right thing, you know? Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. We're here with Jack White at uh, in Nashville, Third Man Records. One thing I gotta say though is, the White Stripes are one of the few big bands of the last. You know, you could name it. You can name it on one hand. Mm -hmm. That went out not sucking. I mean, it's like it wasn't <laughs> like they. You know, they did one album too many. But you guys were still at a peak, I think, creatively. Mm -hmm. And then pulling the plug, there must have been a lot of pressure from. You were on a big label at the time. Mm. Management, there, there must have been some external pressure to, to try to keep it going on, on some level. I think early on people got used to me 
making probably bad what would be bad business decisions? You know, you don't start a tour in South America, you don't start another band while this band is doing so well, and then start another band again. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there was a lot of like, obviously, you know, our whole camp and, and everyone we work with, no one wanted the White Stripes to stop, of course, you know, and, and me and Meg included. But, you know, when you just come to a time where it just, that's the way it is, you know, people always asked us, because we were a two-piece band, how long could it possibly last, you know? and. Um, we always said, well, well, we always said we, we'll know when it's time. And, and you've said you, you don't know why Meg decided, because it was Meg who said, I I, I'm done. Uh, the decision's ultimately hers, because I, I wouldn't stop, you know, unless mm. it was something painfully obvious that this, this, this has to stop, you know, because it's so fulfilling for me as a songwriter, because I, I could do, there's no negotiating. So, yeah, so it's always been fulfilling to me. So, yeah, the decision ultimately hers, but... I thought that's not that's not laying blame. That's it's a it's a both of us deciding together really. You don't like the word collaboration, I've seen. Yeah, right? talk about that, Jack. I guess there's yeah there's certain. It doesn't. It's not the biggest deal in the world. I mean, I don't really care. It's like you know if when you're doing something that really means a lot to you, like if it's a rack and tours, we're in a band and we're completely dedicated to it. And if someone calls it a side project, you're kind of like ah oh, come on, don't call it a side project, man. You don't understand. Because what ends up is you have to have history has to help you. Time has to pass before people can look at it objectively. You can go back and look at all those bands Eric Clapton was in objectively now. Mm -hmm. But maybe at the time it was like, geez, man, slow down. And I think that Third Man Records, this whole institution here, has opened up a lot of ways for me able to take deep breaths and to do a lot of things I wanted to do that under older rules or under different environments were not possible, mm. you know? Because in my head, I will release a John Lee Hooker record just as much as importance as putting out an Elvira picture disc mm -hmm. or have a Conan O'Brien spoken word comedy 45 to me is just as important as you know, releasing a Jerry Lee Lewis live album recorded here or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're all to me important and, and, and make sense to me. They're all art, they're all creation, they're all beautiful to me. And I think that's what we're always trying to do here. Like, yes, what's, we want to put out music. Well, what's the format where, that we love that makes the most sense, that sounds the best, all those reasons. It's vinyl. Some people can say, oh, that's nifty. You guys are putting out vinyl records. That's nifty. You want, to be, well, you want it to be like the old days. I'm like, that's their shtick. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you're going you're gonna to hear that, but it's, the more important thing is that you're trying to create something new that didn't exist before. The 15-year-old out there um, who's used to listening to st stuff on shuffle over a, in his buds, earbuds, and yet you're putting out these art objects, these gatefold sleeve albums yeah. with beautiful art inside and lyrics and everything. Yeah. You're convinced that those guys are going to be able to relate to that, to that kind of physical thing. I, I think that anybody can. I think if you took a kid and you watched movies on an iPad with your son over and over again and he was getting off on that and loved that, and then you took him to a movie theater and showed him the same movie, he can't help but love it more. Mm -hmm. I think if he liked some music and you actually had a record player put in his room next to his bed and said, here, drop the needle on it, and he was staring at that circle spinning around, he couldn't help but find himself more involved <laughs> in the music. You're a part of it now. You're placing the needle down and you can see it moving. There's also a thing, there's also some kind of dangerous sort of black magic there where like <laughs> the, the idea of things moving I think is very important. 
I think that there's beauty in romance when you can actually see an object moving. And, and these new technologies, how, how much easier they are, how much more portable and, and easier to use they are, are brilliant, but you don't see things moving. And I think that's something that, as human beings, we need, just like we need to look at a campfire. Why we're, why we're magnetized to look at a campfire is the same way we need to see things moving. Well, we have been here at Third Man Records in Nashville talking to Jack White. Jack, thanks for spending so much time with us. Thank Having you. Us appreciate in your it. house. <laughs> thanks for coming, man. I appreciate it. When you touch my hand and talk sweet talk, I got a knocking in my knees and a bubble in my walk, and I'm trembling. That's right, you got me shaking. When we come back from a short break, we'll explore the genesis and influence of the Rickenbacker 12-string electric guitar on rock and roll. And we'll remember Southern rock pioneer Greg Allman, who recently died at the age of 69. That's all coming up in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are introducing this week a new feature we're calling Instrumental, where we're going to look at some of the iconic instruments in rock history and dig a little deeper into what makes them special. First up, the electric 12-string guitar, particularly the Rickenbacker electric 12-string. We asked Daniel Escaurisa and Shelby Pollard from Chicago Music Exchange to come in and help demonstrate this particular sound. So what is a 12-string guitar? I mean, it's obviously twice as many strings as your typical <laughs> six-string guitar. That much is obvious. Very spinal tap. Goes up to 11. Yeah, and I, and I think some people may get the impression like it takes, a you know, you got to need 20 fingers to play that thing. There's more strings. Yeah, but it's, yeah. it's really not that complicated. The instrument has six pairs of strings that are pretty close together. Here's Daniel explaining that. You can kind of approach it physically in a similar way and play it very similarly that you would a six string, except when you're plucking or, or strumming or hitting a, a, a string, you're hitting two at the same time and they're either tuned in unison, so it's playing the same note, or it's playing uh, the same note an octave apart. And the result is kind of a jingly chorusing effect. You can really hear these differences uh, if we isolate them. So here's Shelby playing an E chord on a six-string guitar. And here he is playing the same E chord on a 12-string. I 
concept of striking two strings at once while fretting a note goes back centuries to double-stringed instruments like the mandolin, the lute, the charango, and the oud. The modern acoustic 12-string guitar came to America at the end of the 19th century, but it was the legendary blues guitarist Lead Belly who popularized it in the 30s and 40s. The first attempt to make an electric version of the 12-string was a bizarre double-neck guitar with an unusual tuning called the Stratosphere Twin, made by a small company in Missouri in 1954. The Stratosphere was taken up briefly by the country virtuosos Chet Atkins and Jimmy Bryant, but otherwise nobody was really interested in it. But a change came in the early 60s, when songs by artists like Pete Seeger and the Rooftop Singers became hits. Here's Daniel from Chicago Music Exchange again. Folk music uh, all of a sudden became very popular, right, and hip. And the 12-string acoustic guitar is a major component in that music. were getting bigger and bigger and louder and louder in live situations people just could not hear the guitar anymore and the need to electrify these instruments was very real. A manufacturer in California saw an opportunity for electric 12 strings to actually catch on this time. The Rickenbacker company had been experimenting with electrifying string instruments for a long time. Rickenbacker was founded in 1931 uh, and really focused on Hawaiian instruments like steel guitars, tenor guitars, ukuleles, mandolins. They even built an electric harp for Harpo Marx. <laughs> they built prototypes of an electric 12-string in 1963, and they made a very shrewd marketing move when they heard that a buzz-about British band was coming into town for the first time. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! They found out that the Beatles were going to be in the United States to play at the famous Ed Sullivan show that changed everything. Um, and the higher-ups in Rickenbacker made sure that one of these prototypes made it to the hands of the Beatles. George Harrison got the gift. He was totally enamored with the instrument, famously heard on that uh, opening chord of a Hard Day's Night. It's been a Shelby Pollard from the Chicago Music Exchange says that iconic sound could only have been accomplished on a 12-string. It has this great jangle to it that you wouldn't be able to get from a six-string guitar. On a six-string, it just sounds like you're playing a combobulation of wrong notes. It just sounds flat and strange. And it also plays prominently in the, uh, in the solo of the song as well. After Hard Day's Night came out in 1964, everybody wanted a Rickenbacker 12-string. Other British invasion bands like Jerry and the Pacemakers quickly picked up their own. You can hear it 
all over the early singles by The Who. And in America, a guitar player named Jim, later Roger McGuinn, went to see the movie A Hard Day's Night many times, just so he could figure out what instrument George Harrison was playing. He bought his own Rickenbacker 12-string and brought it to the band The Birds and used it all over their first single, Mr. Tambourine Man. Here's Shelby playing that riff so you can hear the Rick in isolation. And here it is on six-string. see it's a lot simpler, much less complex in sound. string defined the bird sound at the time, and the folk rock movement in general. Along with the Beatles, they set the template for the way other bands in the 60s would use electric 12 strings, from the Beach Boys to the Turtles to Jefferson Airplane. Even when bands didn't actually have a Rickenbacker 12 string, they wanted to emulate that sound by playing two guitars at once. But the Rickenbacker 12-string had a unique sound that could never be fully imitated. Here's Daniel again with a technical explanation. One of the things that gives the Rickenbacker its, its distinct sound, other than it being a semi-hollow body guitar, meaning that uh, it's not a solid piece of wood, the toaster pickups uh, that Rickenbacker was so famous for had a, a very different sound than the thinner-sounding single coils. Plus, the Rickenbacker's got an unmistakable look. I mean, Jim, picture that fire glow guitar on the iconic cover to Damn the Torpedoes by Tom Petty. I mean, Petty's used it on many of his classic songs. Here's Shelby again playing a little of Tom Petty's hit, The Waiting, so you can hear that Rick 12-string by itself. Petty wasn't the only 60s-inspired act to use 12-strings in the 70s. The Rick defined the sound of the power-pop bands who modeled themselves on the Beatles, the Birds, and the Who. Bands like Big Star and the Raspberries. Pop scene evolved in the 80s into a new breed of college rock bands uh, with similar sensibilities. R.E.M., Let's Active, The Bangles, The Smiths, The Smithereens, The Rain Parade, The Three O'Clock, all of them used 12 strings extensively. The characteristic sound of Rickenbacker 12 strings even gave the subgenre its name, Jangle Pop. Uh, you can go all the way back to Jingle Jangle Morning from Mr. Tambourine Man for the roots of that.
these bands are basically referencing Beatles guitar pop. That is the source of a lot of uh, this music, and it still continues today. We're seeing these 60s influences pop up in uh, contemporary artists using 12 strings, that nostalgic vibe that they want. I'm thinking about artists like Kurt Vile, the band Temples, Michael Cronin. But you do not see examples of this in other genres. You don't see it as much in uh, funk, soul, and punk. Well, Greg, I mean, you know, I think that there's twice as many strings, so punk musicians <laughs> are, you know, against having to tune twice as many strings. Plus, you know, the, these don't sound good, 12 strings through the wah-wah pedal or the fuzz box. This is a, a, an instrument that, that inherently is meant to jangle. Uh, it doesn't even do the traditional guitar leads very well. You can find the occasional solo out there played on a 12-string rick, but you do not hear a lot of shredding <laughs> on one of these instruments. We asked Shelby from Chicago Music Exchange about the physical limitations keeping 12 strings from being lead instruments. You're cramming twice the amount of strings into the same amount of fretboard, so it, it does become a little bit more difficult to play. It's very difficult to do bends or, or play extensive leads on the, on the instrument. You're doubling the amount of string tension that you need to be able to bend and, and manipulate to play leads on. I can't even get my fingers in there. so hard I can't do it you can't even get it up to the note like that's that's not a full step <laughs> you know knowing how hard it is to play this instrument when you do hear an impressive 12 string guitar solo uh, you pay attention to it I'm thinking about uh, Steve Howe of the band yes specifically on the song awaken that's a 12 string Rick on that song and that is the core of that particular piece. It's the uh, the long extended piece of music on the Going for the One album that, the, that Yes made in 1977. It's about 15 minutes long. That riff that Howe plays on the Rick is the core of that song. Now that started out as an instrumental uh, that he was thinking might be worthy of one of his solo releases. He wasn't mm. thinking about it as a Yes song, per se. The story goes that he was playing that riff over and over in the hotel room, and uh, John Anderson, the vocalist of Yes, was wandering by and going, what is that? You've been playing that for about six hours. Yeah. I like that. Uh, can we do something with that? So the story goes that Anderson conceived some lyrics over that riff, and lo and behold, it became this epic track on the Yes album. It's got an Eastern kind of sound, Jim. Um, it, it's a very unique sounding uh, solo in the lexicon, not only of Yes, but of the 12-string guitar, I think. So here's a little bit of Steve Howe soloing on that 12-string Rickenbacker on Yes's Awaken on Sound Opinions.
I love that you played Yes, uh, Greg, on, on Sound Opinions. I, that, I love that going for the one album. Progressive rock is one of the non-jangly genres that has used the Rickenbacker 12-string well. I'm going to go back to that Beatles thing in the sense that XTC always was a Beatlesque pop band, albeit a very, very ambitious one, taking off from Revolver. 1982, their fifth studio album, English Settlement, an ambitious double album release in the UK in its original form, was inspired by two instruments. Dave Gregory, sort of the jack-of-all-trades instrumentalist of XTC, uh, he had recently scored two new instruments, a Prophet 5 synthesizer and a Rickenbacker 12-string. That sound is on almost every song on English Settlement. Uh, And I think Gregory put it well when he was talking about the song, All of a Sudden It's Too Late. It was XTC's first real love song, he said. And he said the Rick 12 had a melancholy timbre that worked perfectly, Plangent was the word bandied about at the time. The fact that XTC would use a word like plangent, <laughs> you know, they were always a little too smart for their own good. But he's right. That's exactly what this sounds like. I love this album. I think the Rick 12 string makes it. Listen for it here. All of a sudden, it's too late by XTC on Sound Opinions. All of a sudden, it's too late from XTC, a great example of a 12-string Rickenbacker in action. Now let's put it to our listeners. What's your favorite use of a Rickenbacker 12-string? Can you think of a great electric 12-string song outside that jangly pop genre? Leave us a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. That is Whipping Post from the Allman Brothers. We're doing it in tribute to one Gregory Lenore Allman, otherwise known as Greg Allman, who died at the age of 69 on May 27th. Uh, had many health problems over the last few years, Jim, as, as we well know. Hepatitis C diagnosis, had a liver transplant in 2010. Carried on, road warrior that he was, was playing shows for 
right up until the point of, uh, of his death, really. He was out there on the road quite a bit. Here he was, uh, one of the pioneers of what we call Southern Rock. Uh, a born, phrase he never much cared for. No, no, and none of the guys in, in, in the Allman Brothers particularly cared for it. But they were from the South. They were based in Macon, Georgia. The Allman Brothers were an extraordinary band, uh, combining various influences, the blues, jazz. They had straight-up rock. They loved British rock, the, the, the rock of cream and the yardbirds, psychedelia. They had magic mushrooms that helped mm-hmm. them along the way on that path. And they were motorcycle rebels. They were all of, all of these things wrapped into one. You saw that all on stage. Very important band in the South, biracial band. Uh, they, they loved black music. They loved the blues. They loved jazz. They respected these artists. They toured with them. Dwayne Allman played on many uh, records by the uh, great soul artists of the 60s. Greg himself was heavily influenced by blues singers and also that Hammond yeah. um, organ that he would play was very much influenced by soul and gospel music. Uh, the Allman Brothers, of course, Dwayne Allman, the older brother who died in the early 70s, Greg, uh, the younger brother, who really not only the voice of the band uh, and the organ player, the primary songwriter in the Allman Brothers. A lot of people don't realize that it was he who wrote Midnight Rider, and it was he who wrote Whipping Post and Ain't Wasting Time No More and songs like Melissa. He was really writing the the core of their original songwriting repertoire in the late 60s and early 70s. It basically carried the band through the decades. That great voice that Allman had, it seemed older than his years. When you think that many of these songs were first sung when he was in his late teens, early 20s. And the song in in particular that I want to focus on is Dreams. I think that was really the foundation of the band. That was when Greg Allman said, you know, these guys accept me because these were older guys. You know, they, they called him in, you know, with Dwayne. Dwayne was already working with Dickie Betts at the time. And, and these guys were judging Greg. Like, who is this kid that's going to be writing these songs? You know, are they going to be as good as, you know, uh, Willie Dixon songs? Uh, Almond did, in fact, step up his game. And Dreams was the song he said that really put him across with the rest of the guys in the band. Uh, here's a demo of that song from 1969. This is not the final polished finished studio version. This is in fact a demo, one of the early takes that the band had of Dreams, the Allman Brothers, written by Greg Allman on Sound Opinions. Just one more morning I had to wake up with the blues, yeah Pull myself out of bed Put on my walking shoes Went up on the mountain to see what I could see. The whole world is falling right down in front of me. Cause I'm hung up on dreams I'll never see. Oh, help me, baby. 
Dreams by the Allman Brothers, a demo for that tune, in tribute to Greg Allman, dead at the age of 69. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we have an in-depth interview with the great keyboardist of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Ben Tench. We have some thank yous to say on the way out. Special thanks to Shelby Pollard and Daniel Escauriza at the Chicago Music Exchange, Colin Ashmead Bobbitt, and Tony Bacon's book on the Rickenbacker 12-string. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banaszak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. This is Andy calling from LeGrand, Oregon. I really enjoyed your um, piece on the new analog. I'm just old enough to remember when you would go to a record store and they were actually records that were there. And certainly a lot of my formative memories musically were of digging through my parents' records and checking out the album covers and reading the liner notes and all the things that have sort of been lost in the streaming era. But I am trying to share the love of analog media with my sons, who are five and seven, and they love it. They love records. They love getting in there and looking at the covers and doing all the stuff that I used to do. You know, in case anyone feels like the state of music is kind of bleak. Just remember that in rural eastern Oregon, there's a seven-year-old who goes to a college radio station and knows how to play an entire show of old punk seven inches from the 80s. So maybe there is hope for the future. Anyway, thank you so much. Keep up the great work. Hi, I ju- just caught your take on thick listening, and, and I love listening to recordings and trying to figure out what the background sounds are. Uh, and if you want another really interesting one, uh, Lloyd Price's Stagger Lee. I was standing on the corner when I heard my bark. He was barking at the two men who were gambling in the dark. I always wondered why it sounds so loud and finally hearing it in stereo yeah there's the chorus and the saxes and all that going on but the piano player is doing these cross rhythms so you've got the basic beat in six eight going dum da dum da dum da dum the one to da 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 and the piano player is going yaga daga 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 you know so it's it's sort of a two against a three there and he's in the low register most of the time so it makes it really thick it's a wonderful sound. What a good show. Thank you. This is Renee calling from Pasta Girl Beach. I love Jenny Vall. Oh, my. She is so famous in her own way. You got it right when you said she's like Lori Anderson and Bjork, and yet she is her own woman. And I love the way she's putting out there all the realities of being a woman. And as Joni Mitchell said, why do they keep asking us so much? 
Anyhow, thanks for playing her. It was great. Statistics and newspapers tell me I am unhappy and dying. But I need man and child to, to fulfill me. Andy from Chicago. Uh, I usually call in and try to get you guys to do an episode about Thin Lizzy. But now you asked whether or not this uh, singer from Norway, you know, is any is any good uh and i have to say that i found myself captivated by her music uh so much so that i forgot her name before i called you regardless she just has an amazing voice uh wonderful range and i like her influences especially that of goblin okay guys keep up the good work messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.